tension. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. And no, your ears are not, in fact, playing tricks on you. This is not your usual host, Jacob Morrison. This is instead the off-brand knockoff wish slash Timu version of Jacob Morrison. This is Joe Harrison, the editor and graphic designer who spends most of his time behind the camera. Actually, in fact, all of his time up until now. But today is special because this is a special pre-taped episode. Broadcasting online and on the radio from Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we bring you a brand new interview with a worker from Amazon in Kentucky who is fighting to unionize the company's largest air hub, reporting over 1,000 cards already signed. We also take our first look back at some of the big stories of the year and some of the connecting threads. All of that and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program, that is very unfortunate because nobody will be able to answer the phone if you call. However, we would still love to hear from you, so we encourage you to send us a text or leave us a voicemail, and we will respond on our next live show, which will be January 6th, which is a date that seems significant somehow, but I just can't place why. That number is 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857. If you haven't gotten enough of the show by the time we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts, all at the Valley Labor Report. We've also got a website where you can see some of our written work, tvlr.fm. If you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter so you get Boss Watch and Last Week in Southern Labor in your email inbox every single week, you can send us a note at tvlr.fm contact. Just a reminder, your support keeps us on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to make a one-time or monthly recurring donation, Go to tvlr.fm slash donate and help us keep doing what we're doing. If you're more comfortable with Patreon, we do have that as well. You can go to patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report and sign up there. We do also have a small fundraiser going through the new year at tvlr.fm slash postage. Uh, So if you'd like to make an extra donation in the Christmas spirit, you can go there. Basically, we we've got big plans for 2024 and we want to we want to really expand and grow this or I should say continue to grow the Valley Labor Report so that we can reach more people, more workers, build new relationships, make new connections and help bring you all the most relevant news. And part of that is going to be, quite frankly, a lot of letter writing. So we're 
we want to raise $1,000 to pay for that campaign and our printing and postage costs and all of that. So if that's something you can do to help support us, we would be very appreciative of any help. If you are a member of a union, then please do think about getting your local or international or both to sponsor the show. We couldn't do it without our union sponsors, and we really appreciate their support, and we'd love to have more. Also, let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their authors and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries, Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. Uh, we are also very proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, so we encourage our listeners to check that out if you haven't already. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in, whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener. We, we absolutely appreciate you spending some time with us as we head into the holiday. So with all of that said, uh, we've got some great stuff for you today. As I said at the top, first up, we're taking a look at a lost union election in Auburn, Alabama, and some politicians' reactions that illustrate their contempt for working folks. Not that you should need any more convincing of that by now, but hey. After that, we're replaying an interview with an AFGE union member from the Social Security Agency that feels extremely timely as right-wing forces in Congress are once again attempting to lay the groundwork for destruction of Social Security as they do. So, let's dive right in. Here's another Alabama labor story that is... Uh, it's going to break your heart. It's going to break your heart. GE workers in Auburn who filed their petition to unionize with the IUE CWA last month withdrew their petition last week, meaning they will not be moving forward with an election at that plant. AL.com says it's the second time in five years that workers have withdrawn a union petition at the Auburn facility. Uh, this comes after two workers were fired, at least two, minimum two workers were fired for their union support, one of whom was pregnant. One of whom was pregnant. They filed unfair labor practice charges with the NLRB for illegal retaliation. They have to rely on federal protections because, like I said, Alabama does not have any protections like that. They don't have any protections for pregnant workers. Um, Democrat State Representative Neil Rafferty attempted to get a Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed last year, and it was shot down by the Republican committee who ostensibly care about women and pregnant people and fetuses. But, they but you know, like Adam said, they care about bosses more. Uh, this withdrawal of the petition also comes after the mayors of Auburn and Opelika wrote an op-ed in a local paper opposing the unionization effort with some of the most tired nonsense tropes about unions um and it, it's so bad that i wanted to share share some of it with you in their joint in their joint letter they say that they reckon workers are not often unionized today because they quote realize that companies they work for pay fairly and treat their employees with respect uh <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so cute oh, oh man <laughs> That is uh, pretty wild. Remember earlier we spoke about CEO to worker pay ratios. According to GE's public records, GE is the company that these workers were trying to unionize at. 
their CEO to worker pay ratio in 2020 was 1,357 to 1. Efficiency. Yeah. Remember also that they just fired a pregnant woman because of her opinion. At this GE plant in Auburn, they fired a pregnant woman because of her opinion. Because she supported unionization. Where are the free speech warriors? Where are the defenders of parents? Where are the defenders of mothers? They're nowhere to be found here because, it's, of course, it's all theater. It's, it's all theater, and it's all theater in service of the boss. Of course, workers are not paid fairly. We're barely scraping by while our betters, who, let's remember, barely even take the time to be in the same room, hell, even the same state as us, we're barely scraping by while our betters make out like bandits off of the value that we create. Of course, most workers aren't treated with respect. They're treated like a number at best. And they preface all of this with, I believe, uh, you know, I believe this is the case. I believe this to be the case. And this, I think, with the rest of the article and how out of touch it is, just really makes me think that they did not talk to a single worker in this plant about their feelings before running their op-eds. Uh, but, of course, you know, why would somebody like them talk to one of the little people, right? Why would a mayor of, a, of, a, of Auburn, why would the mayor want to talk to just a measly worker? They end the op-ed by saying, quote, it would be a shame for a union to try to dictate how the company operates in this ultra-competitive environment. And I want folks listening to understand that this statement is laced with contempt for you. This statement is laced with disgust for normal people. Because what are they saying here? They're saying that it would be bad for the people doing the work, which is who the union which is who the union would be, right? If they formed one there, the people doing the work would be who the union is made up of. It would be a shame for the people doing the work to have a say. It would be a shame. They want you to put your head down. They don't want you to talk back. Just do what you're told, except the lashes. The important people in New York and D.C. and in Montgomery, they know better than you backwards hicks, so just do what you're told and run along. I mean, that's what they're saying here explicitly. That's explicitly what they're saying here. And so they got what they want for now. Uh, but hopefully at some time in the future, these folks are going to be able to find the courage to fight back. Uh, because I think, I think, I think that they deserve a say. I do think that they ought to have some control over the place where they spend the majority of their waking lives. I don't think that would be a shame, actually. I don't actually think it would be a shame if people had some amount of say over where they spend the majority of their waking lives. I think that would be the bare minimum. But... Fancy boys like Ron Anders and Gary Fuller, the mayors of Opelika and Auburn, Alabama, they think that would be a shame. And that's who they are. Angela D. Geronimo. She is a 
claims specialist for the Social Security Administration at a field office in New Jersey, if I remember correctly. She is also regional vice president for the AFGE Council 220, which uh, is the council of uh, Social Security field offices. And uh, she's also president for her local union. Angela, thanks for joining us on the Valley Labor Report this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. And what local number is are uh, are you out of? Local twenty three sixty nine. Twenty three sixty nine. Well, appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us this morning. And let's just start off with uh, some basic background information for folks at the top here. Um, what services and programs does the Social Security Administration administer? Well, the Social Security Administration provides services for the most vulnerable among our population. So that is the elderly and the disabled. We administer retirement, survivors, Medicare, and disability benefits. Uh, we also, we administer two programs that a lot of people don't really understand and differentiate. There is Social Security um, programs where the worker has worked into, has paid into it throughout their work lives uh, through FICA taxes. And there's also SSI. We administer that as well. SSI is a needs-based program for people whose Social Security benefits may be too low or who are not insured for uh, Social Security. So that is for people who are disabled and for aged people age 65 or older. And what is, you know, what are some of the practical things that that being able to receive these payments provide these Americans, the elderly and the disabled and, and the like? Okay, so um, our programs basically are uh, the number one uh, reason why elderly and disabled individuals are kept out of poverty. Right? So they have this monthly benefit that they could count on, that they use for housing, for uh, food, for clothing, etc. So with, like I said, with Social Security, uh, workers have paid into the program and now they are getting a pension from it. Uh, the SSI, again, needs-based. So uh, it, when you're at your most vulnerable, uh, when you get to the point where you're retiring, you worked your entire life, you now have a pension. A lot of workers don't have the luxury of earning at a level where they pay into a private pension fund. Some do, and that's in addition to their Social Security, uh, potentially, uh, but most do not. So mm -hmm. it basically keeps people out of poverty. It is a, an excellent program, and in the history of our country, probably the most effective. I definitely agree. I think it, it was, you know, if, if you look at actually how many people were in poverty, before Social Security came about, how many elderly people were in poverty? I mean, the difference between elder poverty today and before Social Security is really staggering. That's that's some homework for people. Uh, I would encourage you to look that up. How many folks would you say are receiving some form of Social Security payment now? Right now, in 2021, there are 69.8 million individuals receiving benefits. And how many folks were on Social Security in uh, some form of Social Security payment in 2010? That was 59.2 million. 
And so if I'm remembering right, there was a uh, uh, you know there was an AFGE article about this, and and that's and that's basically like 20% more. There are 20% more people receiving uh, Social Security payments between uh, uh, since 2010. From 2010 to now, we've got 20% more people uh, than than were on it previously. And so presumably, Angela and and you know I, I'm sure that this, that this is the case. The Social Security Administration has received commensurate funding increases to ensure that Americans who rely on these payments are able to get them in a timely fashion and that the workers at this administration are able to do that and provide for the American people in a timely fashion, right? They, uh, Congress does provide through budget for uh, the administering of these programs. Uh, we have not been uh, funded adequately, uh, I would say, probably in the last decade. And if I let's I can't th have there been actual funding cuts or have we just been seeing stagnant funding since 2010? Well, it's been um, stagnant and at times uh, based on inflation, it actually has been cuts. So uh, we're seeing a declining of funding for administrating the program while we're seeing an increase in beneficiaries that are receiving benefits and are applying for benefits. So mm -hmm. it, the, uh, the ratio is we're currently at a staffing deficit of approximately 13 percent while we have seen an increase of 21% in beneficiaries. Mm, mm. And this is saying here from, from, the, uh, uh, from AFGE's website that the budget for processing Social Security claims has actually gone down by 14% since 2010. And, right. I'm assuming that that's, and I'm assuming that that's like accounting for inflation and stuff. While at the same time, like you said, 20% more beneficiaries, but the budget for administering all this has gone down by 14%. And so, you know, it, what does that mean for what does that mean both for the workers and for the people receiving these these uh, benefits? Well, to put it in kind of simpler terms, right, we have 10 approximately 10 million more people that we are uh, serving their um, their benefits with 4000 fewer employees. I used to say at a certain point that uh, we were being asked each employee was being asked to do the work of two. I would not be exaggerating if I were to say right now that each employee is being asked to do the work of 10. Mm. Uh, we're seeing things like uh, employees are being assigned uh, double appointments, sometimes triple appointments at the same exact time. I don't know how that is possible to interview two or three people all at one time. It's impossible. Right. Uh, while at the same time you have it's not just that interview with the individual, that contact with the individual, the member of the public. There's also back end work that needs to be done. Mm. We need to adjudicate the claims. We need to uh, process them, to put it in a more simple uh, term. With disability, we also need to send these disability. We are not medical professionals. We don't make medical determinations, the employees at the Social Security Administration. We send them off to a state agency that makes the uh, disability determination, the medical determination. 
So we need to fund that as well, and we haven't been funding those. We also have post-entitlement actions that need to be taken. All of these things used to be broken up amongst many employees for even just one uh, claim. But now we're being asked to do the full range while also answering incoming calls and mm. taking care of incoming people in without appointments in the office. So um, it, it makes it very difficult. Without funding, there are different ways to starve a program, right? You can cut the benefits itself or you can starve the funding to administer those programs. So that's basically where Congress needs to really pay attention and realize that they need to bring us to the levels of funding that we need. Right, right. And all, and all of this, you know, all this extra work that's being piled on to uh, workers at the Social Security Administration, you know, this means that this means that, that the recipients are having to wait longer and, uh, before their benefits can be administered. And I, and I think if I remember uh, uh, reading an article that, you know, most people when they first apply for disability insurance, they're denied. And that and th so that process used to take something like three months. And now it's taking seven months just to get through that first denial. And then they have to apply again because, you know, because for some reason that just seems to be the way that the system works. And all of this time you're looking at six months to a year where people are not able to, you know, that they're not having any support. That is correct. And, um, you know, again, the initial stage, you take the claim, you, uh, as far as a, a claim specialist like myself, you take the claim, you send it to the state agency for a determination. They're underfunded, so they don't have adequate staffing. So that it holds up the process there. Then it comes back to uh, us at the office, depending on what that determination is, we do what we need to do. If it's denied, the person gets the notice of denial. They're able to ask for a reconsideration. They might be denied at that second level. And again, all of this takes time because of the short staffing situation. And then if they are denied at that level, they're going to need to ask for a hearing if they want to continue to pursue it. They're going to ask for a hearing. Now, this is a hearing with our administrative law judges who are also understaffed and they will be put in queue for a hearing, which will take some time as well. So um, the American public, because of the understaffing and the starving of uh, our administrative budget, is suffering. They are seeing long delays that they should not be seeing. And how is this affecting morale in the Social Security Administration? We have very dedicated employees at the Social Security Administration. I always say there's a common thread amongst people who decide that they want to work for the Social Security Administration. It comes from a perspective of wanting to provide service, right? Service to the American public. We're not just making widgets. We're making a difference in people's lives. So when you have that type of employee who is dedicated and truly wants to do a good job and truly wants to provide quality service, and you're constantly seeing that you can never see the end of the pile on your, your virtual desk because it's on it's lists on computers. But for the sake of illustration, you never see the bottom of the pile. You never see the uh, the clear desk where everything that you set out to do for the day, even for just the day, is done. 
because you're constantly pulled in different directions, uh, things that need your immediate attention. Uh, you have the person in front of you, obviously they deserve your attention. So your morale is very low. And then you have, um, you know, a situation where management is serving lists, not people, right? So they, uh, the Social Security Administration, the leadership really needs to shift gears and uh, refocus on being employee oriented, mm. making the employee the center of public service and create an environment where every employee can uh, blossom and thrive. And that will then in turn translate to um, excellent customer service and uh, public service. Uh, once staffing is up and you're able to do your job, uh, instead of um, being tone deaf to the fact that the reason that the work is not getting done is not because the employee is not putting in 150%, literally 150% each day, uh, but actually because uh, there is a short staffing crisis. We're not able to retain our people because at a certain point morale gets to be too much um, where you're feeling you're not effective, you're not appreciated, and you're never going to be able to do this job well. Um, that all right. leads to recruitment also. Uh, we're for the first time seeing where uh, if we have job openings, candidates are actually turning it down when they're offered the job. That had never happened before. Social Security used to be at the top of uh, the federal agencies for uh, agencies where people wanted to work. It's now close to the bottom. I think we're second to last. Hmm. And so what is uh, AFGE Council 220 asking for from Congress? We are asking for adequate funding uh, where uh, actually it was um, – we're actually requesting, I'll give you the actual numbers because I have it in front of me. It's $1.726 billion increase above what President Biden's budget request of $14.73 billion was for, <clears throat> excuse me, FY23. That would in turn allow for uh, hiring at an adequate rate. It would also allow for updating technology. It would uh, not just uh, staff uh, the Social Security employees, but also the state agencies where we can get the disability claims moving as well. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, Angela, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning. Is there anything else that you reckon folks ought to know about, about this issue? I, we have our position papers on our website, which is afgec220.org. And that's available to anyone if they want to take a look at it. Uh, I encourage people to take a look at it. It's very thoughtful and very thorough. Um, and I thank you for uh, taking up our cause and for giving us a voice this morning. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Angela D. Geronimo, president of AFGE Local 2396, regional vice president for AFGE Council 220. Thanks for talking to us. Take care. Thank you. All right. Folks, we're going to be going to a break. Uh, if you want to give us a call, you got any thoughts about the program so far, you can give us a call or shoot us a text message at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. See you on the other side. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. 
if you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit CoverAlabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, 
You need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. This is Joe Harrison, the editor, graphic designer extraordinaire who's usually behind the camera, but not literally, taking you on this little holiday excursion into the past as we look back at some of the crazy things that have happened, that we have seen, that we have beheld with our eyes. If you have anything that you want to add, or if you want to speak your mind, if you have any comments or anything, again, no one to pick up phone because this is all pre-taped, but you can send a text message uh, or leave a voicemail and the boys will respond when they are live again on January the 6th. Again, that fateful date that I don't remember why it's fateful. Before we move on with the show, I want to do another quick little plug for our postage fundraising campaign. Uh, again, like I said, uh, we were we would really love to raise $1,000 by the new year. It would help us really start the new year on the right foot. Uh, like I said, we have got some big plans for 2024. Those of you who have been with us throughout this year might recall that we had an expansion project this year, 2023, and it went really well. It was actually a very successful expansion project, and... Uh, we want to strike while the iron's hot. We want to take it further, and we need your help to do that, quite frankly. So whatever you can do to help us would be immensely appreciated. If you believe in what we do, you support what we do, or if you don't and you're just in the Christmas spirit, we'll accept that too. Uh, TVLR.FM slash postage is where you can go to donate as you will. Up next, we've got a brand new interview with a worker from Kentucky working at Amazon's largest air hub. He is working with dozens of his co-workers to organize with the Amazon Labor Union, and they are off to a really good start with a thousand cards, 1,000 cards already signed. So without further ado, here is the interview. Enjoy. All right, I am here with Jordan Quinn, a member of the Amazon Labor Union's organizing committee at uh, Amazon's Air Hub KCVG in Northern Kentucky, uh, servicing Northern Kentucky and Cincinnati too, right? Yep. Uh, Jordan, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking time. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. How long have you been working at Amazon? Um, I've been working for Amazon for a little over a year now. I've been at KCVG uh, for about seven months. Okay. Where were you before KCVG? I was at a fulfillment center, BFI4. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, okay. And and how long has the uh, has this Amazon Labor Union campaign been uh, uh, been active at KCVG? Um, so it all kind of started uh, around this time last year. Um, Amazon would offer what's called peak pay, which is a two dollar an hour extra premium during peak season um, to try and compensate us for the extra volume that we're pushing out. Uh, last year, they refused to offer that, um, and a lot of coworkers were uh, were pretty upset. So they started a petition. Over four hundred coworkers signed it, but um, a lot of people drew the conclusion that to actually win the two dollar an hour peak pay and more, we really needed a union. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the you know over the winter of uh, 2022, um, uh, we we're starting to build a campaign, build an organizing committee. Got more coworkers involved, and then uh, officially started card collection um, in March of this year. So, a little over a year, but card collection about uh, nine months or so. That's great. That's great. And uh, well, uh, really excited. I- I've been following your campaign um, on Twitter and been really excited about what y'all have been doing over there. Uh, seems like y'all are. Uh, really well put together, know what you're doing, and uh, really like seeing that. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, you, you mentioned that, that maintaining peak pay was, was something that kind of has been animating a lot of the organizing efforts. What are some of the demands that y'all have in your, in your campaign that you'd be looking for in, say, a, a first contract? We're, um, we're fighting for uh, $30 an hour starting pay. For, uh, for all associates at KCVG, we want 180 hours of paid time off each year, which would be about four and a half weeks. We want um, union representation at disciplinary meetings because, uh, you know, oftentimes you'll get dragged into some HR investigation or your manager's going to write you up. And, uh, you know, if they don't explain clearly what the rules are, um, even their own written policies uh, are decided on a case-by-case basis. Um, so having a shop steward in your corner, having some union rep there who can uh, walk through, you know, what's allowed in the contract, what's not, um, that would be a huge help for coworkers. We've also got um, a lot of immigrant coworkers who speak English as a second language. So we've been fighting for uh, professional translation services, for uh, workplace communications, and free on-site English classes for folks who want to improve their English, as well as free on-site childcare so uh, working families can afford to go to work and not have to pay a second rent for daycare. Yeah, absolutely. That that all sounds really great. And you know, the uh, since Amazon is such a good company, you know, one of their spokespeople said uh, they're you know the Bernie Sanders of companies. They're all you know respecting your right to organize and uh, you know listening to you and all all that kind of stuff respectfully. Is right. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think it would be a surprise for, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's not, uh, not all, uh, hunky dory at, uh, Mm. Jeffrey Bezos's biggest air hub in the world. Um, in fact, uh, we've been facing quite a bit of management pressure, um, in the last few months. Um, actually last month we, uh, uh, on election day, we uh, printed out a big check and uh, we put it on top uh, on our union tables outside of the entrance um, to the building. And uh, the check, uh, we throw it out to our billionaire exec- executives and union busters. And it had the $10 billion in profits 
that workers made this company in the last three months. And we were asking coworkers uh, where they think those profits should go. We had um, a big easel with uh, uh, a whiteboard with a bunch of our different demands on there. And people could put a sticker up on what was the most important thing for them to fight for. And this is the same week that the VP of Amazon Air was out there walking the floor. So management was uh, pretty upset with us. Um, they started coming out and uh, badge challenging us where they asked to see our side of badge um, six, seven times in a couple hours. They were threatening us with write-ups um, saying that we had to take down our table because it was a safety hazard. Well, when we explained to them that uh, it wasn't a safety hazard, that management sets up a bunch of tables uh, in the breezeway right in front of the doors, and that's not a problem, then how's our table an issue? They came back and said that it was um, an unauthorized structure instead. Mm. So we asked them, how do we get it authorized? And uh, surprisingly, no one had that information on hand um, at HR or from the management uh, office. So... Um, in the last couple of weeks now, they've been uh, putting up a bunch of signs around saying that the union is an outside third party, saying that uh, you could win more the same or less in benefits with the union. And um, they brought in a bunch of millionaire lawyers who they've dressed up as managers and employee relations uh, operatives to go walk the floor and lead captive audience meetings, spreading lies about our union. Mm. Um, so, uh, no, they're not being neutral. <laughs> they're not accepting our rights to uh, organize a union at all. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that is a shame, but it, it's not surprising. And they've actually, um, you know, been escalating in the last couple of weeks and, and they've issued uh, final written warnings for at least 11 people uh, at this at this time. I, I don't think that there's been any any firings yet. Um, but how how did those written warnings come about and and what's the status of those? I know that that your organizing committee is pushing to have those written warnings rescinded. Um, wh what's the status of that? Yeah. Um, so uh, <clears throat> because of the uh, unauthorized structure that we had set up, asking coworkers where they think the profit should go, uh, we told them that they were violating our Section Seven rights under the National Labor Relations Act. And uh, we refused to take down our tables. So uh, they came back a few weeks later, sat us down in interrogation meetings with HR. Uh, some of us were in there for uh, about an hour, where they would ask us the same questions over and over again. And the result of those investigations were uh, me and 10 other coworkers getting uh, final written warnings over uh, insubordination. Mm. Um, because what Amazon wants is subordinate workers not workers who stand up for themselves and stand up for each other. Right. So uh, we're using uh, every tool available to fight back and defend our jobs because, uh, you know, we have legal rights to be able to form a union, to talk to our coworkers and have a union materials out there. So we've been going through um, what's called uh, Amazon's appeals process. And uh, I, I don't have any... Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't have any hopes that uh, the appeals process is going to be um, any more transparent or just than the rest of their union busting methods. So we've also filed unfair labor practice charges with the National Labor Relations Board um, for these retaliatory write-ups. And um, we, uh, we've also led marches on the boss in the, uh, in the last couple of weeks um, 
where, uh, you know, we go into the manager's office, uh, us and about 30 other coworkers. And uh, the first time that we did it, we talked to the general manager. And uh, he said that um, he wanted to talk to us one-on-one individually to hear our uh, unique individual concerns mm. is how they put it. And uh, he said that we can't have uh, collective concerns together, despite the fact that we all came together because we all got the same concerns. Um, the last March on the Boss that we had, uh, I think they got coached by corporate or by uh, some professional union busters because uh, somehow they were all busy in a meeting. Everyone in senior site leadership, they were stonewalling us, refused right. to even hear our voices. Um, so we were offering them a final written warning of our own, um, putting them on notice for the illegal union busting and retaliation that they've been uh, uh, dishing out our way. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been seeing a lot of support since then. You know, um, We've gotten millions of views uh, on TikTok from those videos. We've been having donations just pour in left and right. I've been having uh, more people reach out to us uh, from other unions expressing their solidarity and wanting to pass their own resolutions in support of our campaign um, and donating to our campaign. So in a certain respect, you know, people are afraid of losing their jobs. But on the other hand, this um, this intimidation and retaliation is having uh, some real blowback, um, not just on the shop floor, but among the rest of the labor movement. We're seeing what Amazon is doing to us and wanting to help us fight back against it. Right, right. And one of those TikToks that has racked up a lot of views was uh, a TikTok where y'all had asked the company for coats. Can you uh, explain that situation to the audience? Yeah. Um, so uh, we're an air facility, which means that a lot of the freight, the freight that we process is um, coming off and going on to, uh, uh, to flights. We also have um, uh, outbound and inbound uh, dock for, uh, for ground transport. And um, both on the ramp and on the dock, there's no real weather control. Um, and it's been uh, it's been freezing cold a lot of these days. Ramp workers are provided with um, uh, coats and uh, uh, and waders and uh, and hats to help keep them warm while they're out there. But uh, workers on the um, on the ground dock uh, are not provided that same PPE. So um, you know people are uh, trying to work out there in 15, 20 degree weather, and uh, you know freezing their asses off. So when a couple of coworkers said, uh, "Hey, we know that you provide uh, uh, you know big puffy jackets uh, that are high vis for um, for ramp associates, uh, can we get some?" Uh, they were told that uh, they could get hot hands instead, some of those hand warmers, um, <laughs> and to uh, uh, just wear their own jackets with their vests over it, uh, so that way it would be um, uh, you know visible in case of yeah, any traffic. Know, the... I I'll let you finish here, but I uh, I don't really go hunting anymore. Um, but when I when I was a kid, I went with my uncle a few times, and the hot hands are they're, they're pretty nice, but they're typically inside of a lot of coats. Is that's how I used them, right? Yeah. I, had, I had a big it's, coat. It's no and, replacement for proper insulation. Right. I mean, like just your bare hands, and then even even a even gloves with out a jacket with hot hands inside them. That just that 
that's not adequate, especially in the temperatures that y'all were facing. I mean, y'all were in temperatures that hypothermia could set in, but they said, we're not going to give you coats because it's not below freezing yet. It doesn't have to be freezing for you to get hypothermia. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just, it's incredibly frustrating considering the amount of money this company makes that they spend on stock buybacks that Jeff Bezos can spend on his next mega yacht or his next 10 minute space vacation. But when workers who are doing the work that actually makes this company run ask for some protection from the, from the elements, uh, we're met with, Oh no, we can't do that. (laughs) Right. Right. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so you, you mentioned that, that y'all have been having a lot of people reach out, uh, to sign cards. Um, so, so what has the, the employee response to, uh, to this campaign and, and, and even kind of the broader moment that we are in, uh, been inside of KCVG. Um, we've gotten a lot of support. Um, we've got over a thousand coworkers who signed up for the union so far and, uh, more and more people are getting involved every day. It's one of the reasons why management is so scared of our campaign and why they're bringing in all these professional union busters and putting up all this anti-union material around the facility to try and scare people away from joining the union. Right. Um, I think, uh, yeah, that week that we, um, that first week where we were out there with uh, our big, you know, $10 billion in profits banner uh, was one of the best weeks that we had of a card collection. Um, not just because of the message that we were putting forward, but because coworkers were seeing management start to crack down on uh you know their pro union coworkers and we're saying hey that's messed up you know <laughs> i want to have my coworkers backs so i'm going to sign up for the union um and i think you know just with uh the rest of the stuff that's going on in the labor movement like this year i think has seen um one of the highest numbers uh one of the highest uh strike years on record since uh the 1980s and right now, actually, at the uh, uh, DHL World Hub at CVG, just across the street from our facility, the uh, uh, workers there are trying to form a, uh, a union with the Teamsters. They're out on strike right now. Um, we've made stops by their picket lines uh, every day in the last, uh, since they went out, I think that was a day or two ago. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, all the DHL workers I've been talking to are like, yep, we know about your campaign. We absolutely have your back, solidarity. Um and I think, too, when the UAW workers won their contract, that's something that uh, we've all been talking to coworkers about, you know, right. because part of our perspective is that Amazon is such a brutal anti-union corporation that they will refuse to come to the bargaining table unless we force them. Right. So in our view, it's going to take a really serious strike, even just to get Amazon um, to start talking to us. And uh, coworkers are worried about mm-hmm. what a strike would look like for them and their families. When the UAW won um, back pay for uh, for striking workers, when they won um, uh, a wage increase for their um, parts distribution center employees of uh, you know up to 30 bucks an hour starting, that was a huge boost in confidence, you know, because if they right. can do it, a lot of coworkers were seeing, well, we could do it here too. You know, Amazon's one of the most profitable corporations in the world. Right. Absolutely. And, and uh, you mentioned the, you know, the DHL uh, strike uh, as part of the, you know, those folks being um, supportive as part of the community response and, and the 
It's about uh, 1,100 DHL workers that uh, recently unionized with the Teamsters. They are uh, striking um, for a, a fair first contract, is my understanding. And so that's great to hear uh, that, that y'all are in communication with one another. And there was almost a, a UPS strike, actually, <laughs> in your area, and UPS backed down. Um, and they rehired people that they had fired uh, because the Teamsters said, we'll go on strike if you don't hire them back. And, and that was, you know, a really, really cool thing to see i think and and uh, was that a big enough story that it penetrated into your uh, you know your workplace and your coworkers were able to see that that wow you know the teamsters were able to get these people their jobs back because they threatened to strike they didn't even have to strike they just had to threaten it and they got their jobs back is is that really kind of set in with your coworkers um that hasn't been as much of a feature of the discussions that we've been having i haven't heard that much co-workers about it unfortunately but i think it shows that when you when you're organized you know in your workplace when you have a union uh to help defend you and your co-workers then it can only take just uh the threat of lifting your finger to stop their profits that can force them to actually you know bring back people's um uh bring back people who've been uh, unjustly fired and i think you know that's uh, that's also an important lesson. Um, I think for for our campaign too. You know, with us facing these final written warnings, Amazon's trying to put us on notice. They're trying to scare us into backing down, which we're not going to. <laughs> but it means that there's a real threat that they could try and fire some pro-union workers. Um, right. But the only way that we can defend ourselves is by sticking together, having each other's backs, and taking collective action. I think the other thing on that too is that, you know, Amazon has a whole litany of policies that coworkers don't even know about. Mm. They can write you up and fire you whenever they want for whatever reason. If they want to let you go, they absolutely will. Right. So the way that you fight back against that isn't by running away from the union because you're worried about getting fired for your manager knowing that you're a union supporter. Actually, you have a lot more protection when you stick mm. with your coworkers because it's us who do all the work that makes this company money. <laughs> And that's ultimately what they're most concerned with is their profits and their power. That's why they don't want to pay us 30 bucks an hour, give us 180 hours of PTO each year, too. Right, right. So, Jordan, if uh, one of your coworkers finds this and they are interested in signing an authorization card, where would they need to go? Yeah, um, so they can go to our uh, uh, our website. Um which is, uh, I think it's uh, unionizedamazonkcbg.org. Um, you can also find one of us with these uh, union vests on the floor. Um, ask us for a for uh, an authorization card. Um, we've also got uh, QR codes on our, uh, our trifolds and our leaflets. You can scan with your phone in case you're worried about a manager seeing you outside, signing a card, you can sign it at home later on. And what about if I'm an Amazon worker outside of your facility? We This is going to be on the radio in Huntsville, Alabama. We have an Amazon facility here. Um, what if uh, one of them hear it and they say that uh, they're interested in starting an organizing committee in their facility? What do they need to do? Yeah, um, you should definitely reach out to us. Uh, we're, uh, I think, Unionize Amazon Northern Kentucky on uh, Facebook. Um, Amazon Union KCBG on Twitter uh, and Instagram. Uh, just send us a direct message. We're more than happy to get in touch. You can send us an email at uh, kcbgworkers at gmail.com. Um, 
Because I think ultimately, you know, if we're able to organize at Amazon's biggest air hub here in the world, then I think that can have an electrifying effect around the country. You know, that's what we saw what happened after the uh, JFK 8 workers when their union election. Mm. Um, that was a big inspiration for us and for other workers at different facilities. I think ultimately it's not just KCBG workers that deserve a union. It's all Amazon workers. That's right. one way that we can start to, you know, rebuild a fighting labor movement to build the power of the working class on the shop floor. Um, it's the first step. So yeah, if you're interested in working together, we absolutely want to work with every single Amazon uh, Amazon worker who wants to fight back um, and win us the things that we deserve. Jordan Quinn, member of the Amazon Labor Union's KCVG Organizing Committee in Northern Kentucky. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a good one. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 7452 
Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior'd Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior'd Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior'd Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior'd Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior'd Law. The name with proven results. As labor union members, we face our share of challenges in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about a different kind of challenge, the climate crisis. We've all seen the fury of Mother Nature, the storms that can turn lives upside down in an instant. That's why Hometown Action is launching our Climate Protection Project. We're heading out to 10 rural communities, listening to local folks, and taking action with them to protect communities impacted by climate disasters. And we need you, our union brothers and sisters, to join us. Together, we'll make a difference. Our strength on the job is undeniable, and now it's time to put that strength to work for the planet. Let's protect our communities, our families, and our future. Visit hometownaction.org today and sign up to volunteer for the Climate Protection Canvas. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. Once again, this is Joe Harrison, the graphic designer and editor for the Valley Labor Report. And we're coming to the final segment of the show. Uh, if you have anything you'd like to add, anything you want to comment on, any thoughts that you have about what you've heard so far, uh, feel free to call or send us a text, 844-855-TVLR, and the boys and respond when they return on January the 6th. So if you are new to this program, you may not know that even though I literally just said we're coming to the final segment of the show, the show actually does continue beyond that, but off the radio. So if you are listening to us on the radio and perhaps you like what you hear, and I don't know why you wouldn't like what you hear, then you can find us on Facebook and YouTube, and you can keep on listening as we head into an extra part of the show that we refer to as overtime. So definitely join us for that as we've got more stuff coming up with that. Uh, just search for the Valley Labor Report again on Facebook and YouTube, and you can follow along with us there. There won't be any video. Well, not any video of me. I mean, there will be video for the videos that we're playing and the interviews and stuff but there is no video of me unfortunately because i couldn't get my camera to work but that is probably honestly for the best that you don't see what's behind this voice so for this last segment uh, we have a little bit of a roundup of important stories uh, from the last year that are specific to the state of alabama so with that said 
let's take a look at our quote-unquote final round of memories from last year. All right, so we wanted to make sure uh, that we mention this. Uh, we have been covering pretty closely the lockout at the West Rock Paper Mill in Cottonton, Alabama. Uh, they have been locked out since October the 6th. You can go back and check out our coverage on our on our channel page if you want to see uh, see more in depth. But you know, basically, the gist of it is that they uh, they were too far apart, and so the workers there voted down the contract uh, that was offered by Westrock, and they said, "No, we're not going to take this," even though even though uh, Westrock was offering a thirty thousand dollar buyout of this language, uh, so they were very motivated to get rid of this language. And the, the workers said no. The workers said, we want to keep this language. We, uh, you know, maybe this 30000 makes us whole uh, for this one contract period, but we know that you're not going to give us $30,000 in the next contract period, which is only three years away. And so, uh, you know, we can think a little bit more long-term than that. We are, uh, you know, we are intelligent actors, right? Um, Self-interested and uh, in, in all of this. And so they said no. We're going to vote that down. We think you can do better in a year where, you know, immediately after Westrock had made more money than they ever had in the company's history. They made so much money uh, that if I recall correctly, the calculations were that if they just gave half of the profit to the workers, they could have given everybody a $30,000 bonus across all 50,000 global employees, right? Uh, with just half of the profit from 2021. I mean, it's just insane that they were trying to do this, uh, trying to trying to take from these Alabama workers what would amount to a 10% pay cut. Um, so it's just really, really... Uh, gross behavior from this company. So the workers said no, and the company locked them out. Uh, the uh, After voting on contracts four different times across this lockout, uh, they accepted the most recent offer last week. It was on January 31st, I believe, is when they held their vote. Uh, and they did vote to accept it. They voted to accept this contract. Uh, and the contract, the difference between this contract and the last one is that, so on top of the like two or 3% raises that they were getting in the first contract, which is way below inflation, they got a $1.50 an hour raise across the board. Uh, they're also adding an additional 1% into the employee's 401k account. I think that they made some improvements on their health care instead of cuts or instead of saying the same, which is good, and they got a $7,500 one-time bonus. Um, WRBL reports that uh, local 971 president Bobby Watson uh, says that these... Um, that all of these taken together, all of these additions taken together approximately make up for the taking of the Sunday premium pay. Um, so, so that's good news. Um, you know, I think it, it I, I think definitely, I, I know that Bobby was looking for more. I know that a lot of people were looking for more, um, but taking on a multi-billion dollar international company as one paper mill in Alabama is just a really hard thing to do. Um, so I think that, you know, getting what they can and going back into work, um, it, you know, it's certainly not an irrational move on their part. Um, 
and uh, uh, and you know I, I'm hopeful and I saw some some discussion in the comments when they announced this on their union's local page uh, you know there was there was some discussion about you know three years will be here before you know it you know we want to make sure that we're ready uh, that we're ready next time to get what we left on the table and so I do hope I do hope that they um, you know that that there is a and and this is what Bobby was saying to me at one point when we when when we were talking over the course of this lockout that you know the West Rock meant this to you know really destroy the union and, and break it up and um, and that he feels like they're more the three locals in that mill are more unified than ever uh, that they're more um, more militant than ever uh, more you know antagonistic towards the company than ever right um, which is you know. Uh, which is ultimately going to be good for um, good for the union going forward in, in contract negotiations. I, I hope. I hope, and um, and you know, I hope that a lot of the that, that these folks will, in the next round of, of contract negotiations, they'll be able to do more uh, more planning and and more um, coordination between the other West Rock locals, right? Because that's what that's what it would actually that's what it would really take to. Uh, you know, bring the corporation to its knees is multiple mills going out on strike together, right? That's what it would take. Um, and so, uh, uh, so here's hoping, you know, they've got three years to prepare for the next round of contract negotiations. And I know that, uh, you know, um, there, there's there's going to be a lot of motivation there on, on their part uh, to do that. Uh, something that I want to do here in the next few months is get on the program some people that were involved in a lost paper strike in Maine in 1987 to talk about some lessons that they learned from that and um, and you know maybe lessons that. Uh, uh, and, and obviously, obviously, talk to some of these paper mill workers in the coming months. I've got uh, that that real news piece that was going to be coming out that was going to be a little bit longer about the lockout. It's going to be transitioned into a like people's history of the Mart Mill lockout. Um, so you know, looking forward to that. They return to work on um, the 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 official return to work date hasn't been set. I think some I think they're going to stagger the return for people. Um, and it's going to be towards the end of February, so. Uh, uh, so yeah, uh, very you know happy for these folks that they're going to be able to, to to get back to work. I know that four four and a half months without a paycheck is incredibly difficult, and um, you know they showed a lot of courage and a lot of a lot of fight, and and, and you know they won some things, right? They won some yes. things, and so uh, so that's that's really good to see. Speaking of good news, folks. Rocket City Trash Pandas players will be making more than double during this baseball season. That's right. Their pay is going to double. Their pay is going to double. Rocket City Trash Pandas players' pay will double this season. Uh, that is if they uh, ratify the collective bargaining agreement negotiated uh, by their union that they just won in September. The agreement is for five years. It's a tentative agreement. It is now off to the membership for a membership ratification vote uh, with the 5,000 minor league baseball players who are uh, now members of the union. 
the biggest thing is really the wages. The biggest thing is, is really the wages in this agreement. Um, and across, but across all levels of the minor leagues, pay is going to be more than doubling. So let's take a look at this from uh, in the complex league, which I had never, I don't, I don't, that's rookie ball is, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know exactly what that means, but the complex league, their pay is going to go from $4,800 a year, which is wild think about that, to 19800 a year. Still not a whole lot, uh, but you're getting a lot closer to, you know, this job is something that is kind of sustainable. You know, at the rookie league, you're still, you know, it's kind of, I think, expected that you're going to be working a second job. Um, but it's, you know, from 5000 to 20000 a four a, a quadrupling in that case. That's a huge, that's huge, right? Absolutely. In the low A's, pay is going from 11000 to $26,200 a year. In the high A's, it's going to be going from 11000 to $27,300 a year, uh, which is, again, not enough, I don't think. And that's my issue with having a five-year agreement is, you know, this is their first contract, so obviously, hopefully, the next one's going to be better. I just hate they're going to have to wait for five years to get to the next one. Uh, the double A's, which is what Rocket City Trash Pandas is. Rocket City Trans Trash Pandas is the double A minor league affiliate, is a double league, double A minor league affiliate of the Angels. Uh, their pay is going to be going from $13,800 a year to $30,250 a year. This is some $30,000 a year is you're getting pretty close to, you know, this is uh this is a reasonable pay, I think. You know, I think I would be you know the the USFL, the basically the minor league football uh one of the minor spring football leagues. Uh their pay is 55,000 in their newly negotiated union contract. Um so I think something like that really should be the goal, but uh you know, um still a big improvement. And then finally in the triple A's, it's going from $17,500 a year to $35,800 a year. Uh, so like I said, the pay is really the biggest thing. And that's, you know, the biggest thing that the, the baseball players were telling folks, you know, when that, when they would be asked about, Oh, you know, why are you unionizing? That's why. And so, um, that's a pretty big difference. Uh, Major League Baseball also agreed during the contract not to reduce minor league affiliates from the current 120. That's very significant. Yes, that is very significant. Now, there are going to be... So, that's the minor league affiliates. There's going to be no less teams over the course of this contract. There are going to be very few more players in that the max that they could have now I think is 190 and the max under this contract is going to be 180. So there will potentially be some, uh, like a couple here and there folks that, uh, uh, positions on the teams that aren't going to be available, but you know, I think overall it's, it's a, a good thing. Also, most players will be guaranteed housing, housing and players at double A AA and triple A will be given a single room as opposed to having to bunk together. Players at low A and high A will have the option of exchanging club housing for a stipend. The domestic violence and drug policies will be covered by the union agreement as well. And players who signed for the first time at 19 or older can become minor league free agents after six seasons instead of seven. 
Minor league players will also receive four weeks of retroactive spring training pay for this year. They'll get 625 weekly for spring training and off-season training camp and 250 weekly for off-season workouts at home. So, you know, like I said, this is it's a huge difference from what they were working with uh, before. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this. I think that it's going to make the minor leagues a lot more sustainable. Uh, I'm obviously being in Huntsville, a fan of the trash pandas. Um, I go to games fairly regularly and I'm excited to know that, uh, you know, they're going to be making significantly more than they made last year. So. And it's always good as union folks to be able to support other union folks, right? And now, uh, as I mentioned with the XFL and USFL, how, how cool it is to cheer on those brothers out there knowing they have a union contract. And it's the same here with the Rocket City Trash Pandas, the Birmingham Barons, uh, and the rest of the minor league teams. So definitely good news to hear this morning. Yeah, and it's worth remembering what they faced, right? They were legally exempted uh, from minimum wage laws by a law passed in 2018 under Trump. Uh, and many of them, like I, like I just said, made less than $12,000 a year. And when you're doing a professional sport, even if it's in the minor leagues, that requires really kind of a full-time level dedication to practicing, training, working out, all of this all of this type of stuff. And so the time that you can spend doing a second job is really limited. And they provide a lot of entertainment for folks. And, you know, if this is a, if this is a thing that we are going to be willing as consumers to spend money on, then the people who put it on for us really should be compensated well, um, especially when you consider the owners, you know, millionaires and billionaires, you know, for, for literally just owning, right? The quintessential, the, the, the archetypal uh, business owner, you know, who works hard and kind of comes from the bottom up and has a small business and, and works longer than his employees. That's not the case with with uh, uh, sports leagues, right? They're literally just owners for owning, whereas all these people are doing lots of work. It's pretty insane, the system. Uh, they really, you know, preyed on people's dreams. And Adam, you know, you remembered uh, working in a, in a restaurant and talking to, you know, some of the Stars players back in the day, right? Oh, yeah. About uh, stuff that they faced. Yeah, I, I worked for a little while uh, at one of the restaurants that was at the Joe Davis Stadium back when we had the Huntsville Stars. And, uh, yeah, I got a chance to, to talk to some of the players. And if I remember right, they were staying four to an apartment. Uh, and mm. these were not like big, luxurious apartments either. Right. They were pretty much, you know, the, one of the cheapest complexes in South Huntsville, uh, fairly close to the to the stadium. So, uh, yeah, they were struggling. They they were struggling. Uh, it was very obvious. They were living, you know, like like kids basically, mm -hmm. having to you know um, help each other out, living off ramen noodles and and uh, you know staying for to an apartment. So. You know, to hear that there there's improvement on housing, there's improvement with pay, I think that's significant because, like you said, they they prey on folks' dreams. Mm -hmm. So many young folks have a dream to play professional sports, and we know the reality is most will will, will not make it. Right. Uh, but that opportunity is kind of dangled out for so many uh, you know young men and women out there in the sporting leagues. It's dangled and uh, you know it's taken advantage of, and so. I think through collective organization, these workers, like any other worker, can can have a better existence and a better uh, salary and better working conditions for themselves and for their families. We got a, a comment on a video last week um, 
that we did about privatization of public schools, which we have been very vocally and uh, unashamedly against the privatization of public schools. Um, we make no bones about that. We're very clear about that. We are against that. And, and the privatization of public schools goes by another name, school choice. And so we made a video about that. Or we did a segment on the show and we cut it up and, and put it out there. Uh, and we got, a, uh, we got a question from a Tom asking if there is ever a place for quote-unquote school choice. Is there ever a place for school choice? And so I told him that I'd ask you, Adam, about this because I think he asked, I, I think he asked it in good faith, um, it, sure. uh, it seemed to me. And, and, yeah. um, and so I, I told him that I would ask you, Adam, what you thought about it because my instinct is that my instinct is to be opposed to any privatization but that I can conceptually, I can conceive of a use case for a publicly, you know, owned and operated charter school meant to be a, uh, a, a an experimental testing ground for interesting pedagogical, you know, new pedagogical methods for students. And, you know, I could conceive of a use case for that. Um, and And so, you know, uh, while I would not, while I would definitely be, you know, tend to be against any forms of privatization or or uh, giving public schools into private hands in any, you know, in in any way, you know, I can conceive of a way that you could get me on board with a one particular project. But uh, but you know, I have not been, I've not spent most of my, you know, most of my activist work most of my union work in the education field so i wanted to i wanted to see what you thought adam and, and i told him i would so so adam what do you think is there ever a case for quote unquote school choice i think for school choice as a shorthand for a right-wing program of privatization no um, i think school choice a little bit more broadly defined there, there very well can be places for that. And I'll give you an example. Some school districts allow choice within their district. Uh, for example, in a city or a county district, you may normally have to live in a certain part of town or per part of the county, and you're zoned for that particular school, right? It's a neighborhood school setup. Uh, some districts allow choice within their school system. So perhaps you're more interested in the school on the other side of town. Uh, and this may be relevant if the schools themselves have unique programs, for example. Um, Athens City Schools is an example where each elementary school has kind of a different theme and a different little uh, twist on things, right? You may have a STEM-based school and then one that's uh, a little bit more along the lines of the arts. Uh, so. I can see some room for that. Uh, obviously, that's not what folks typically are meaning by school choice. Um, to your point about charter schools, charter schools in theory, as they were originally theorized, essentially followed on that model, right? They were thought of as a means to experiment um, and to innovate, to have controlled settings more or less for these innovations and experiments, um, particularly targeting certain populations that were not being well served. So uh, 
the the classic example I remember from like the origins of charter schools, which includes from uh, AFT, right? I mean, union folks were, were thinking about these things. Um, the idea would be like a public charter school that serves high risk youth who are at risk of dropping out. And maybe at this charter school, they have some flexibility on their scheduling. Maybe they're not locked into an eight to three schedule with seven periods a day at 52 minutes, right? You know, maybe there, there are things that they need to do to accommodate students, uh, whether it's curriculum or logistics or structure of scheduling or, or however that may be. I can see a place for that. And there are charter schools that exist in the United States that are public in terms of they're still publicly funded and, and theoretically publicly owned. Um, and that aren't that bad, right? They, they more or less do what they're supposed to do and uh, kids are benefiting. I would say that's certainly not all of them. I don't even think that's the majority of them by any means. But there are some decent charter schools out there and that kind of stuck to that mission of experimentation, innovation, maybe targeting uh, certain types of students or targeting certain types of curriculum, for example. Uh, I'm okay with some degree of that because I think our public schools are very rigid in a lot of ways. However, that is very different from a conversation about how can you reduce funding to public schools, which is the end result of these schemes for vouchers and charters, um, education savings accounts. There's various names. Uh, the Alabama Accountability Act has scholarships, for example. All of these are different means that have the end result of reducing funding to public schools. Uh, and therefore reducing resources available to the students and staff inside the public schools. Um, and we've talked a little bit in the past how often it, it, you will siphon off not just the funding, but some of the students and families. Mm. And so the schools, the students left in the public schools are often the, the more challenging ones, right? right. The private schools are, are less prone to accept students with disabilities are students who don't speak English as a first language, uh, students who have behavioral challenges. You know, private schools are not inclined to accept those students, uh, and they're private. They don't have to, unlike the public school. So, and I know there, of course, they can't violate law, federal law in terms of discrimination, but w we all know right. there's what's on paper and then there's reality. There's plenty of ways to discriminate without necessarily uh, giving your victim a clear EEOC case. And so mm -hmm. all that to say, school choice is a, is a rhetorical device that is used to advance an agenda of privatization where what was public becomes private. And that does not work for education. It doesn't work for kids. It never has, and I don't think it ever will, and I think there's plenty of research to show that is just the fact of the matter, that these school choice schemes may serve some families and some students in some cases. I'm sure we can find them, uh, mm -hmm. but they're the exceptions, not the rule.
And for me, I don't think you sacrifice the few. I mean, I don't think you sacrifice the many for the few. And, and just because a handful of families may have their needs better served under some of these programs doesn't justify everyone else being worse off as a result. Um, and that's, you know, that's what's so unacceptable about it because ultimately they point to some of the, and sometimes, in some cases exaggerated, in some cases real flaws or issues within the public school system as it currently exists, and their proposals all make it worse. Mm -hmm. They all <clears throat> cut the funding. They all reinforce some of the issues that are in place already. Um, and so that's that's how I feel about it. I mean, so if you tell me you can find a charter school in Timbuktu somewhere and they're doing a good job and, you know, it's not corrupt and the kids are learning, I'm not going to argue with you. That could be very well the case. Uh, there are some charter schools out there. They're doing a pretty good job. But by and large, uh, it's not about helping kids. It's about money. Public education is one of the last remaining uh, pieces of our welfare state in this country, and therefore it takes up a disproportionate amount of our budgets. I mean, if you look at the state of Alabama, we have an entirely separate budget just for education, and it's in the billions of dollars. And mm -hmm. when, capital, when capital sees those kind of dollar amounts, they see opportunities. They want that money, that public money, in their private pockets. Yep. Um, so there's the economic aspect to it, and then there's the you know, more social and cultural aspects to it, uh, that segregation is absolutely a big component of this, both racial and otherwise. Um, segregation for religious reasons, segregation for political reasons, um, issues of gender and uh, sexuality and ability and all those come into play. Uh, it's not about helping kids. It's not about helping teachers. It's not about helping the communities in which those teachers and, and students live. It's about segregation. It's about money. And there were a couple, a couple of things about uh, education that y'all mentioned in the chat. Yeah, yeah. That I wanted to, to also respond to because I, you know, smaller class sizes absolutely are a proven benefit. And that's why so many teachers unions uh, fight so hard for those year after year because of the way it impacts working conditions, the way it impacts learning conditions, right? That's one of those most clear examples of where the teacher and the student have real common ground there because a class, mm -hmm. I can tell you, a class size of 15 versus a class size of 30 is, is night and day, right. night and day in terms of the workload on the staff member and in terms of the learning opportunities inside the classroom. It just makes a huge difference. And so I uh, definitely agree with that. Uh, Christine mentioned a third of us can hardly read, and uh, there is some significant problems with literacy in this country. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think that, I mean, um, and I, I don't think Christine is implying this either, that that's rationale to attack the public school system. I think it just shows us what work needs to be done. Um, and in terms of the KIPP schools, that's one of the most well-known chains of charter schools. That's that's something else that's pretty creepy about these is, it, you know, there's chains. Mm. Um, 
we had Terry Michael on a couple months ago talking a little bit about conversion charter schools that are in place in Alabama, at least are legal in Alabama, uh, where conceivably a charter school chain could come in and take over a part of your school, like a part of your building that's not being used. Uh, it's pretty wild. So, um, you know, the much easier way, the much more simple way is to fund an appropriate free public education for every kid and do what's right by them. Talk to the educators who are the experts, ask them what they need and get it for them. Small class sizes, let them shape the curriculum, let them shape what's being taught. Um, it's, it's really, it's not rocket science. Um, most of this stuff has been pretty well documented for decades, like the links between poverty and test scores, for example. Uh, that's not new. We've known about that for a very long time. So when we say, when we hear like Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey say that Alabama's test scores are now going to move up into the top 30 oh, before wow. the end of her term, she says. Right? right. <laughs> um, how are you going to do that if you're not going to address the socioeconomic factors that play into those scores? Alabama ranks at or near the bottom in test scores in our schools because Alabama ranks at or near the bottom in every metric of quality of life. Yeah. Right? It's it's not... You can't just separate it out, and that's also where AEA and some a lot of the education community is failing as well because you have to have a holistic approach because there are holistic results. I yes. know it's inconvenient to talk about how race and poverty uh, and corporate subsidies and how these things impact schools. It's much easier to try to separate those conversations and silo it off. Uh, but it's not real. You're, you're, you're not, you're not addressing real life if you're not addressing that. Yeah. So, you know, Kay Ivey, please explain to me, how are you going to get our test scores into the top 30 while maintaining the status quo mm -hmm. in every other aspect of our life? Yeah. William in the chat says, don't, I don't like the lottery system for students to attend right. charter schools. Me that either. seems like a neoliberal way of admitting children so that they could get a quality education. Indeed, Christine it also is. And says, it's also like an admission, right? We're basically right. admitting, okay, this is it's a better be, education, right. but not everyone's going to get it. Sydney Vogel in the chat says, outlaw private schools and watch public school funding skyrocket when rich kids have to go there. Not a bad I idea. I believe that's how it is in Finland. Actually. It is, yes. Um, Free American 2020 says private schools should be required to take the same standardized test that public education takes. And that is absolutely the case at minimum. You know, like if we can't, you know, the, that's actually one of the th one of the reasons, one of the things that people put forward as an idea that, oh, we should have more private schools or school choice or whatever, because they want less government oversight. And it's absurd that we should not have oversight over where our children are being taught. That's bonkers. Right. Or, or they, well, we, they want money for it, but they don't want the oversight that right, should right. normally course, come with those funds. Uh, he also says, how do we free – well, I mean, he, I, I really don't know. Presum I mean, I guess, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the gender of Free American 2020. But um, private, school, uh, private schools do not want poor minority English as a second language, special ed, discipline challenges. We mentioned that. That's yeah, absolutely, absolutely the case. And, he says and there's that, systemic – exclusion yes. of those kinds of students in state after state after state how do we know children aren't leaving a failing public school and going to a failing private school and that's actually an under 
like something that's under discussed is the degree to which you know private and charter schools actually don't help as much as they're advertised right and we've talked about that yeah. before sydney vogel in the chat says in 2020 in 2040 there won't be schools anymore just uber teach oh god it seems to be the the trend right that's what they want yeah for sure um uh, luckily, teachers' unions, Sydney says, are strong and generally well supported by parents and voters. Uh, although, free American counters that AEA is a dirty word in Alabama, and that is that is the case. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. But appreciate the conversation about education in the comments. Absolutely. That is going to conclude our time on the radio today. I appreciate everybody who took the time to listen. If you want to stick around with us, then I recommend you hop onto your nearest computer, preferably one that belongs to you. And look for us on Facebook and YouTube and join us for our Overtime segment where we will be taking a look at some right-wing populism and evaluating whether or not the proponents actually care about working people and replay a fan-favorite interview with Adolf Reed Jr. If not, then it's, well, it's your loss. But thank you anyway for joining us for this show, and we will see you next week with another episode of Pre-Tapes and Best Ofs. I hope you all have a Merry Christmas, and never forget, all power to the workers. Thank you.